Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Yes, good morning. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, a bit of politics with your Wheaties if you're up in the morning. And if you're not uh, under your doona, you're a bit crazy. It's a bit chilly outside, not as bad as uh, it has been. If you're not in Melbourne, you'll be realising, you won't be realising just the biting, the biting cold, insensible cold that we've been experiencing. But of course, if you meet people on the tram stop and uh, they say, oh, but I'm from Canada or I'm from here or rather, they just sneer. But I'm, I think it's cold. It's, it's uh, good to invest in a, a good uh, jumper and a, and a thick coat and uh, feel commiserations for the people who are living on the streets, living rough, because it is cold. I hope they've got some strategies. Uh, the uh, the d- program today, we've got a variety of stuff. You might be aware that Venezuela had its uh, a recent vote last Sunday or a people's, for a people's assembly. Uh, it was fraught with... Uh, uh, um, Opposition uh, responses is, and also American statements. Uh, Pence, Michael Pence, uh, was uh, came out and uh, said uh, the vice president of America made explicit statements about the uh, dictatorial nature of the Maduro government in Venezuela. But uh, I went to a event uh, a day before the uh, uh, vote that was giving background material from the opposite point of view, Maduro's government's point of view, or rather the people's point of view. There was a a link to Venezuela, which was fascinating. So we'll hear from a journalist, uh, a documentary filmmaker who lives there. And uh, she uh, gives a view of some of the things that have been happening to the lead up to the uh, People's Assembly. Uh, the People's Assembly, uh, the uh, it's very interesting because the uh, opposition, which is basically a right-wing opposition uh, from the moneyed class, while the uh, Venezuela itself is struggling uh, after the plummeting prices of oil uh, and uh, the lack of uh, diversity in its economy and also constraints that have been put on uh, the uh, import-export of stuff from outside uh, because of uh, American interference, I'd have to probably. Uh, But also there's been this incredible international uh, media approach to reporting Venezuela, which has been completely one-sided. 
the uh, opposition demonstrators in the street are represented purely as demonstrators being affected by government, uh, when in actual fact the demonstrators, the right-wing demonstrators, are incredibly violent, as we hear. Anyway, we're going to hear from uh, Katrina, the uh, documentary maker from Venezuela, and also from Fred Fuentes, who, uh, just as a follow-up to uh, a final word, <clears throat> which is uh, fascinating stuff. The uh, and after that, it's been a busy time down at South Bank. Uh, you'll have heard on uh, if you tuned in to listen to Stick Together that there was a rally outside Frown or uh, a world of entertainment. Uh, oh world of unemployment uh, over the sacking of maintenance workers down there, but uh, also the Longford dispute down SA, uh, S- down in, from Gippsland, where uh, the same sort of idea has been uh, happening, where the uh, workers, the maintenance workers there have been um, fired and uh, they're looking for uh, workers interstate so that they can uh, pay them less and give them uh, uh, less in terms of conditions, that Longford dispute came to Melbourne and on Thursday they demonstrated outside uh, Esso and it was quite hilarious because Esso had put a flimsy little uh, strip of orange tape all around their building with signs on it saying, private property, don't trespass. It was quite hilarious. But anyway, uh, uh, Scabby the Rat and the Cat were floated down uh, Yarra River. It was a sight to be seen. It was quite hilarious. Anyway, I've got a report on that event so that you can keep abreast of what's going on in terms of these major disputes. After that, we've got This Is The Week That Was, and uh, then Humphrey's coming to explain what banks do, why we, why they're there, and how they skin us alive. Bring down the covenant. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, you're on 3CR with Annie on uh, Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, as I said, as I threatened, we're going to hear about Venezuela. First off, this is Sue Bull who uh, is part of the Socialist Alliance, who were part of the group of people who put on the event. Apparently, uh, it was down at the Multicultural Hub, and apparently there was a bit of uh, argy-bargy about them actually being allowed to do this event. That just shows you the extent of uh, the uh, right-wing reach. The mainstream media narrative is of protests against a dictatorial government. But missing is the violent and extreme right-wing nature of the protesters. If you've seen anything on the media of late, you'll notice the government gets no coverage, only the street protests get coverage. Um, And this, of course, also includes economic sabotage by Venezuela's elites and Western powers and the progressive achievements of the revolution are just ignored. Um, The speakers today are going to outline some of those things. 
This public meeting was called to bring together supporters of the revolution and people who are curious about the revolution to hear first-hand accounts of what's really going on. Katrina uh, Koroshek is a US documentalist uh, currently working with the news website Venezuela Analysis. She has also been involved over the years with the production of documentaries about Venezuela as Venezuela Bolivariana, People and Struggle of the Fourth World War and the Old Man and Jesus, Prophets of Rebellion, and she's currently residing in Venezuela and she's been there since 2004. She's a militant of the National Association of Free and Community Media with the communal television station of Comuna Atorea, uh, Lara TVEC and audiovisual collective Voices Urgente. She's also a member of the popular feminist movement, um, Mujera por la Vida. So over to you, Katrina. In the opposition, hoping to obtain strength uh, on the street. Last Thursday, the 20th of July, the opposition called for a civic strike. Uh, their idea was to, for the entire country to go on strike, for the factories to be closed, for, trans- for tr- transportation to go on strike, uh, and no one to no one to be able to come out of their houses. Uh, but in reality, it's not the strike was not supported from any section of workers. All of the major state-owned companies were working totally normally, except for a few cases, which I will mention now, that, where they were sabotaged. And the majority of the private sector uh, companies were also working in, in complete normality. Uh, most businesses were open. Uh, transportation, maybe there were there were a few lines of public transport, uh, of private transportation that that did go on strike, but the majority of the transportation was also working in the majority of the cities. Uh, there was a small camp, a small campaign of road, road blockades and barricades, uh, mostly in upper class neighborhoods that did limit people's ability to go outside of their community. Uh, and there are some uh, there are some examples of workers arriving to their workplaces only to find themselves locked out by their employer their employers. Uh, in Marquisimeto, the state of Lara, for instance, where I am located, uh, workers from the direct the, the Diveca factory, which makes steel parts for construction and for, for the PDVSA oil company, opened the factory and continued production despite of the fact that there was no presence of the owners, administration, or worker security. Uh, and you, you won't find even a single report of assemblies and workplaces where workers decided actively to participate within the strike. Uh, and the areas and the, the few factories where they did manage to go on strike, uh, it was mostly a in, in owner incited strike. Despite the very limited participation in the strike, the opposition violence on that day uh, reached a new peak. Groups of rioters with Molotov, uh, Molotov bombs or cocktails, uh, homemade rocket launchers or, or bazookas, uh, attempted to set on fire the building of VTV, which is a state television channel that's located on the east side of Caracas. Um, at least one of the attackers was pictured holding an assault rifle. So now we're not talking about any kind of peaceful protest, uh, not even um, not just uh, artisan uh, homemade weapons, but also we're talking about uh, assault rifles and war weapons. They were finally repelled by a joint action between the National Guard and the VTV workers. Uh, it also should be mentioned that in Kabulari, which is a middle class, uh, a, a basically a, a middle class uh, and working 
a middle-class uh, municipality in the state of Lara, right outside of Barquisimeto. Uh, workers at the state-owned milk processing plant, likely Los Andes, were also attacked uh, by violent opposition protesters. Um, though the violence in these states was mostly led by very small, but massed and armed groups and concentrated in wealthy areas and municipalities that are controlled by the opposition, as in the case of, uh, as in the case of Kaulari, which does have an opposition mayor. In a, we, it, it should be noted that the, the governor of the state of Lara is also opposition. This same week, the opposition also moved forward with, for their plan to create a parallel state, which was part of the which was part of their initial plan of creating this whole consultation process. The first step in the plan after the consultation was to appoint a new, a new Supreme Court judges. Uh, over, uh, new Supreme Court judges overrule the constituent assembly, and by the end of the week. Uh, appoint a new interim president that would then go to then would then go to presidential elections. The National Assembly did comply with the appointment of the new Supreme Court judges. However, the move was quickly detained by the national government, and those who were appointed as judges were were very quickly sanctioned. What we've seen from then on, uh, they did not manage to go forward with that plan for the creation of the parallel government, uh, mostly because of uh, a, a very desperate deterioration of anything that might have represented a true political unity amongst the opposition ranks, uh, probably because there, there, there are still a lot of infighting for, for power and also in terms of uh, differences between between tactics and leadership within those ranks. Uh, certain factors from the United Democratic Roundtable, the mood, uh, apparently asked Maduro to push back the, the National Constituent Assembly elections in order to allow them to participate, participate as candidates, uh, in response to which Maduro told them to ask for it publicly. Uh, they refused uh, to mention that publicly at the time, uh, while other more radical sectors within the opposition continued calling for violence uh, and attacks, even attacks against electoral centers in order to stop the, the National Constituent Assembly at all costs. For this week, uh, the opposition called for two days of general strike. On Wednesday and Thursday, on Wednesday and Thursday of, sorry, uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, they called for a general strike uh, and for a takeover for, uh, of all of Caracas for today on, on Friday, all of which were basically unheeded by the majorities. Uh, today, there was, no, there was no takeover in Caracas. In most activities uh, were, were held in a very normal fashion. Yesterday was the, the end of the campaign for the Constituent Assembly. There was a massive participation in Caracas uh, for, that, for that event. Uh, and most cities are, are basically functioning normally. Here in the state of Lara, where I mentioned before, we have an opposition governor and an opposition mayor who have been actively financing these, the, these violent protests. Uh, we have had a, maybe a little bit higher level of sabotage than in other parts of the country. Um, there, there has been much less, uh, much less transportation. There are some businesses that were closed, but it, it, it's necessary to say that it's mostly because of of threats by these small 
violent groups placed against the transportation and it's been through social media all week that if that if the the buses decided to go out into the streets they were going to get, they were going to get burned that if businesses opened they were going to get they were going to get looted uh, so there was also a, a lot of fear factor involved uh, in the participation it's not necessarily a, a willful participation in the strike and in, in these cases but the state of Lara is a very isolated case in terms of the entire country. It doesn't reflect the situation of the rest of the country. There are the, the great majority of the 365 municipalities within Venezuela are, have been functioning in completely normal conditions. Uh, I just wanted to mention as well here in the state of Lara, uh, La Los Andes was once again violently attacked yesterday. Um, in the, the communities within this this middle class municipality of Kabulari uh, have been completely locked down since Monday. Uh, you can find pictures of the internet of barricades made out of sandbags, uh, some of which reached the height of two meters tall. Uh, the, these communities have been completely locked in to, for almost an entire week. Uh, the center and the popular class communities have maintained relative calm and normal activities despite the lack of transportation. Uh, several community media stations which have served to mobilize the people in, in electoral processes have also been under attack. And specifically, I need to mention Radio Prepopular, uh, which is the community radio station of the Comuna where I currently live, uh, was set on fire as a product of a, of a Molotov cocktail. Montaña TV, a community television station in the state of Táchira, was also attacked in, uh, which was also attacked in violent protests of 2014, uh, was seized yesterday uh, and set on fire by by 20 masked men, who then proceeded to attack the nearby houses where where the founders of the station live. In both cases, luckily, uh, both cases were were luckily dissuaded without causing major damages, uh, but it does show. Um, it does show uh, desperate and violent actions by the part of the right uh, to to silence, uh, to not just to protest, but also to silence uh, any any kind of uh, movement towards the constituent assembly and within the Chavista community. There's also been an increase in the last two weeks of burnings and lynching uh, and lynchings, uh, as was the case, the well-known case of Orlando Figueroa who was burned alive in a protest in Caracas for looking like a Chavista. And now we've, got, we've gone up to more than 20 cases on a national level. And I need to mention as well, because I'm sure this is, is something that's not going to come out in the international media. And just this afternoon, 50 armed and masked men boarded a bus full of military men on the outskirt of Barquisimeto, who then proceeded to cover the officials in gasoline, set them on fire, beat them, and force them to run naked down the highway. This is a story that's not going to go out to the mass media who, who continue to, who in, grand, in, in large part continue to portray uh, the, the opposition and these actions of the opposition as some sort of, uh, as some sort of pacific protest. But now we're talking about, uh, uh, now we're talking about military racist and, and, and classist type actions uh, that, you know, just really inhumane toxic, tactics that are being used. Uh, to get to to get to the objective that they're looking for, which is not just to to avoid the the national constituent assembly, but also uh, end with the the Bolivarian government. And if this kind of violence is what is going on 
uh, with the opposition at this point in time, without the opposition being in power, we can just imagine what can come uh, if they do manage to, to take over the government at some point in time. However, uh, despite these cases of violence since Thursday, Plan Republica, which is the military support that accompanies the voting centers, uh, the, the voting centers, uh, they've already been installed in the centers, and by this time, uh, by this afternoon, there was there was about 96% of the electoral centers installed. Uh, with, uh, in I imagine at this point in time, uh, it's about midnight here, so there would there should be about. Uh, should it be about 99% to 100% of the machines, the voting machines installed within the electoral centers. There have been some incidents, uh, again mostly in opposition-run municipalities where voting centers have been violently attacked, set on fire, machines destroyed. Uh, it is, did happen in one of the southeastern communities here in, in Lara, Ruecasur. Uh, however, the National Electoral Council has taken provisions <clears throat> that allow for people to vote in any center within their municipality in case their, their center should be under siege or inaccessible because of roadblocks. So despite desperate attempts to frighten voters and sabotage the voting process, everything still indicates that elections for the National Constituent Assembly will be held on this Sunday. At this time, there's still at this time, uh, there's still a possibility of some negotiations. Um, the former Spanish president, Zapatero, has arrived in Caracas this week and asked for negotiations. He was a part of failed negotiations between the government and the opposition at the end of last year and also played a role in the release of opposition leader and coup plotter Leopoldo Lopez from jail into house arrest, which happened about two weeks ago. Uh, President Maduro, Maduro made another appeal to the opposition to negotiate. To negotiate. Uh, some leaders from the moderate, supposedly moderate uh, wing have accepted this call, uh, though not without conditions. And uh, there appears specifically the governor of the state of Lara, Henry Falcón, who's the leader of Avanzada Progresista. Uh, who up to this point has financed and abetted the violent protests, uh, but at this point in time, he's calling for negotiation involving concessions on both sides. Uh, so it seems like everything's on. <laughs> it seems like everything's on its way towards the National Constituent Assembly. There's still a slight possibility uh, in the last few hours of, of tomorrow that, that there will be some sort of negotiation process. Uh, between uh, between the government and the uh, and the and the opposition with the mood, uh, but it still uh, isn't a direct possibility. There's been a lot of disagreement. You know, while while Henry Falcon is calling calling for for negotiation, there are other factors uh, like like Freddy Guevara uh, who are calling to to maintain the violent uh, the violent protesters and the violent resistance, what they call resistance in Venezuela. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Now, that was a piece uh, <clears throat> from the day before the uh, election of the National Assembly in uh, Venezuela. You can see how serious the uh, it is, what's going on in Venezuela. It's, it's a very, very serious time in Venezuelan history. Uh, they did have the election. Uh, the next uh, piece of information that came out about that election was that uh, uh, the English company that uh, apparently supplied the 
uh, voting machines have said that there have been uh, there has been uh, irregularities uh, that the uh, which is is being denied, and uh, that uh, there's been a threat of taking that company to court over these allegations. It's interesting because uh, what Maduro had done was uh, sidestepped the. Uh, attacks of coming from the political side of the opposition by creating the election for a public assembly that could then influence the direction of policy, taking it away from the National Assembly because the the opposition has a control of that uh, centre and a centre of power, and uh, then the National Assembly and the opposition and the American government said that what Maduro said, did were by calling this election was unconstitutional, which it isn't actually apparently. Uh, so it's it, the fight is on, uh, still continuing, and you wonder about as someone said to me, why why is it so important to uh, make sure that. Uh, for, for the message to be out to say that uh, Maduro is a dictator, that this is uh, the reason for why uh, Venezuela is on its knees, etc., etc., uh, purely because they want to make sure that if there is a takeover, an intervention by America, that uh, the world community will think that this is an appropriate response. That question mark. Uh, the final word on this from that day goes to Fred for, uh, Fred Frientes. It was interesting because on that day there was a woman there who was quite clearly espousing, it was a, a member of a uh, an, uh, an oppositional force because she stood up and said, uh, she was a young woman, she theatrically said, oh, my country, Venezuela, and then she said, you've got to be careful about these messages. There's two sides to every story. And so Fred then made this response to that particular uh, uh, statement. By the, by the Venezuelan security forces. I'm saying that in the context of an insurrectional war against the government. Having said that, these abuses have occurred. I will have I've also said that there is one important difference that I think, and I think we'd have to recognise this, that you may say that it's just words, but at the very minimum, at least the government and the heads of the security forces have condemned those acts of its own forces and have said that those abuses should not occur and those that have been responsible for those actions should pay the popular price of it. No opposition leader has come out and said those responsible for having lynched and set a lighter person should face the consequences for those actions, which in my mind, if it's not an explicit support, is at least a tacit support for those, those kind of actions. And that has been one very clear difference if we talk about the leaderships of the two, the government and the, and the opposition. And the last one, I very have short time, so I, I can't really go into into very detail, but again, it relates to the question of the accountability. Uh, absolutely, every government should be held accountable. There's no, no denying that. And this relates to the question that, that Nick raised about you know the diversification of, of the economy. Obviously, a lot of the economic issues that have occurred in Venezuela today have to do with certain economic decisions that the government has taken over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, but all of those decisions have to be put in a certain context. So it's actually not completely true to talk about, as the media presents, that today Venezuela is more dependent on its oil than it was 20 years ago. What figure did they use? That the exports are 97% oil now, and they weren't 
before. But if you look at, for instance, oil production, the government has struggled to increase oil production to the level of what it was before the boss's lockout in 2002-2003, which had a devastating impact on the oil industry. And as of yet, it, the, the industry itself has not been able to recover to levels of production of that time. Really what the increase in exports of oil is, is explained by is the huge jump that's occurred in the oil prices. And that's what these, these things are measured in. So it's had to do with the fact that 15,000 basic large middle and light upper level management of PDVSA went on strike for two months, walked out of that industry, and it's had to be essentially rebuilt, rebuilt from the start. What it's done subsequent to that is what welfare has been able to do. They had to make serious, a series of choices. And in the context of where it had faced in 2002 already a boss's lockout and a military coup and was facing continued large levels of opposition because it should not be forgotten that even under Chavez, the opposition was always had a, a significant base. It was, it was not like under Chavez, 100% supported Chavez. In every election that the opposition has at least stood in, they've always got at least up to 45%. And in the National Assembly elections, we're able to get up above the 50% um, in order to get that majority in, in, in the National Assembly. But the government decided that the, that money should be spent redirected to paying the huge social debt that was in that country. Now, one can criticise and go, well, maybe if it had been spent on diversifying the economy back then, um, some of the problems wouldn't exist today. But one could also argue that that government probably wouldn't have survived, uh, given the, the, the large level of opposition it faced, if it wasn't able to directly deal with the immediate needs of the people at that time. Other decisions that it's made, the currency control system. I think you would find no one in Venezuela on either side of politics who, agree, who believes that the current currency control system uh, is operational and functioning. Everyone will tell you that there's a huge problem with it. But the question is how to do with it. And it's very difficult to explain the currency control system, but it's essentially a system that was implemented in 2003 to stop US dollars, to stop capital flight out of the country, which no doubt at that point would have brought the economy down. It was part of a concerted strategy by private business to bring the government down. The government implemented the currency controls. At that time, it served that purpose. But today, it's having a very distorting impact on the economy. It's something that the government has to try to resolve. And I'll, I'll go further and just created problems of corruption that exist within that system as well that the government has not been able to deal with. Um, so these are things that, of course, they, they can be held to account. But these are all not really what the opposition protests are about today. Um, that's, that's, I think, is my, my final point. These are important discussions that should be had and hopefully can be had, but will not be able to have, be had in a context where we have, as I said, an insurrectionary war being carried out by what is still by clear indications a minority of that country trying to overthrow a democratically elected government. Um, only by pursuing other paths will we be able to perhaps deal with some of these other problems and resolve what it's going. And that's really the context and my final point of why the Constituent Assembly has come about. One may disagree with that as a path, but that is what it's essentially aimed at being that. And one hopes that a very large turnout on Sunday, one hopes a very peaceful turnout on that Sunday, um, because there has been threats already made. There's already been uh, electoral booths that have been burnt down by opposition activists as an attempt to stop people from expressing their democratic right to vote. One hopes that, that that doesn't occur on Sunday, and then we can begin to see what happens also within the context of what Katrina mentioned, the attempts at dialogue or attempts to sit down with those that are willing to sit down to have a discussion about how the country can be brought back from what is in increasingly looking certainly like a direction towards some kind of civil war um, scenario and to bring that back into some kind of stability and order um, in order to then be able to deal with these other questions that, that have been raised. Um, but as I said in my talk, I'll finish on this point, 
I think that's why international solidarity is so crucial today, because from the, from the opposition side, that is what they're focused on now. It's clear that they're ramping up the, the announcements from international governments. Who knows what will happen after the July 30 elections? The Trump administration has already said for them that's, that's a dividing line. They say if those elections go ahead, they no longer believe the constitutional order exists in Venezuela. Then we already know the opposition have set up a government in waiting. One can only suspect that a possible announcement, I'm not saying this is what Trump will do, but a possible announcement is to say we no longer, no longer recognise the Maduro government, we recognise the government in waiting. The government in waiting is just that, it's still just one in waiting, it does not have the support or the military base to be able to do anything. But it begins to only further uh, heighten the tensions uh, in, in that country, and one hopes that we can bring that back. But that will require international solidarity, because I'm sure we can't really rely on Julie Bishop to come out and support, I'm, I'm the position of the Australian federal government, and support a position that, that looks towards peace uh, in, in Venezuela, rather than coup or violent insurrection. Thank you. Nina Simone, you're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, she was right. Uh, It happened in America, it happens here. Down at uh, Longford, the uh, workers, uh, the maintenance workers, have been given a uh, pup. The the, uh, company that ESO outsourced its maintenance contracts to, UGL, then decided it was going to par itself in half and make another little uh, UGL uh, offspring and use that company to uh, fire everybody uh, and then go and look for some interstate workers. And so uh, all the people down around Gippsland, Sale, that area there, who have been working for the the rigs off uh, the coastline there, for ESO, are all in um, quite a, a state because, of course, jobs are not easy to come by in country areas, as we all know. The stability of that employment has been important to that area. And uh, there's really no reason to do such a thing except for greed, really, uh, because, of course, this is uh, the resources these pay- this company is making huge money out of uh, Australian resources as well as uh, kicking the Australian worker in the bum, basically. And as, as we've been reporting, this is happening right across as- Australia, this tactic of uh, penny-pinching. And uh, interestingly enough, I'll have to promote this. I can't believe it. I opened up the Australian... Uh, sorry, <laughs> no, it wasn't the Australian. It couldn't possibly be the Australian. The Age this morning, and it's got... Its lead story is the war on wages, and it's got a double spread. Essential items that have increased faster than inflation. 146% health costs faster increase than inflation. Uh, Childcare, 440% faster increase. Education, 120% faster increase. Electricity, 213% faster increase. And the price of food, 20% faster increase than wages. 
How about that? So it's hit. It's finally hit that uh, the big story in Australia is inequality and low wages as well as increasing costs. So, of course, obviously, uh, government policy, federal government policy is to create a subclass of Australian workers. This is the country they want us all to live in. Anyway, uh, I went down to South Bank, uh, the beating heart of greed in Melbourne, as it's been dubbed, redubbed, and uh, to find out, uh, you know, give a little report. This this is uh, uh, Steve Dobbs, uh, Steve Dobbs from the Gippsland Trades Hall Council, and some of the affected workers from Longford. Uh, they came up on Thursday, like I said, and uh, they came up with Scabby the Rat and Greedy the Fat Cat because now it's multiplied. And like I said. They floated down the Yarra River, putting on a great show for all the people walking across all the bridges. All right, Matty, well, thank you very much for that. How good does it feel? 26 years. 26 years of consecutive financial growth, and how good are we going? Workers getting exploited left, right and centre. No better example than ExxonMobil. Esso, we only get two things out of them, gas and wages. Last year, $8.5 million profit, no tax. Their maintenance crew, UGL, it's labour hire, let's face it. Talented 200 workers down there that have made this $8.5 billion profit for the company and how do they get rewarded? I sat in these negotiations 12 months ago with the boys. I was at the coalface when we sat down with UGL and they tabled an agreement. And I'm glad to see Lisa here today to say that we need to fix these things. This is an agreement that was certified in Western Australia that legally applies over here. In total, it's a 30% wage cut straight out. If you bring in the different rosting arrangements, it's a closer to 50%. And they said, take it or leave it. That's the reward Australian workers get for doing their job under this government. My response is, I tell you what. When the CEOs of this country take a 30 to 50% wage cut, then maybe I'll go back to the membership and talk about it. You still won't get it, but I'll talk about it. When our gas bills reduce by 30 to 50%, well, maybe I'll go back to the members then and talk about it, right? And I'm glad again that Lisa's here, but God bless our politicians, the conservative ones up there that like kicking the worker. When they take a 30 to 50% pay cut up in Canberra, well, then we'll have a look at it. Until that day, not a penny from the pay and not a minute on the day, I've got to tell you. And in the regional areas, I've got to tell you, and a lot of you are from here, jobs are more than a job in the regional areas. I used to organise down the, uh, the southwest. They are life. They're more than a job. And to hear the other day that UGL... In, uh, in conflicts with uh, ExxonMobil, advertising to workers interstate to come and do the work of these loyal 200 workers I find disgusting. And they should hold their head in shame. You know, we've made these speeches. I've been an official for about 18 years and I'm getting a bit over it. Right? There needs to be fundamental change. And Lisa, she's one of the best in the business and at the current uh, figures that are coming in, there will be a change at the next election, and we all need to ensure that. But when we talk about fixing these problems, right, they're lining us up job by job. We're fighting companies that have billions and billions of dollars in a fighting fund, 
Right, we need fundamental change to the industrial action, the industrial relations law in this country. Not just tinkering at the edge. We need root and branch change of the industrial relations system in this country, and it needs to happen by a Labor government. Next speaker is the State Assistant Secretary Craig Kelly. Please, oh, the State Assistant Secretary of the AMWU, please give him a warm welcome. Give it up for Craig. Right, I, the whole Australian Union movement, thank each and every one of you for putting up a fight for the sixth largest organisation in the world. And as you heard, they did not pay a cent tax last year. And they're raping and pillaging. They're raping and pillaging our national resources. And we're getting stung harder and harder for it. And you would have heard yesterday that inequality is at an all-time low now. And since um, the ABS started publishing you know, the, uh, the wage conditions, it's at the lowest. 2% now in wage growth nationally. And it's an absolute cry and shame. Because we know... The, how inequality feels. When we're coming home and we're trying to keep our kids in at school, we're trying to keep ourselves you know, part of you know, a good society when we've got these corporate dogs behind us who are just you know, killing it with their profits. Now, they're not alone in this. There's another mob called AMA and they're called the Australian Mines and Minerals Association. And they... Yeah, Everyone knows AMA. And then, of course, you've got another mob down the road, UGL. Their, their head office is just down there. So it's fair to say that AMA um, were probably the architects or, of finding these loopholes in the Fair Work Act. And um, AMA today, they wrote a letter to the editor that was published today in the Gippsland Times, and they make all these assertions that say... You know, that we're bullying with these inflatables, like an inflatable rat and an inflatable um, fat cat is bullying. Exactly. Who is the bullies? Now, yeah. now, if you're going home and saying to your family, I've just got the arse today and they've offered me job back on 35% less, I reckon that's bullying. What do you reckon? Yeah. So... Anyway, they make all these other assertions and, you know, without going into too much detail, they say, you know, the assertion is that the inflatables are bullying and then they say that, um, that the, you're actually going to get paid more under a deal that we've actually analysed, which is 35% less. So the only way that can be more in your pocket is if you're casual. You've got no security... And then your shift rosters, they want you offshore, you know, twice as long. And it's all at their discretion too. So we know the contribution that each and every one of the offshore oil and gas and the onshore oil and gas you know, workers do for this country. They provide us with, you know, good energy, good jobs in the most highest risk, you know, industry going. We've seen the appalling you know, accident at Longford in our memory. And we know that it's a highly skilled job and you do not get those skills for nothing. 
and you deserve to be able to not be in a position to erase 25 years of your bargaining for a shit agreement that was done in WA by four people. Who... So keep up the fight. We're going to win this and we're going to change the laws and this ain't the start of it and the end of it will be when the laws are changed. Thank you very much. All right, one more speaker we've got, and we've got Steve Dodd. I'd like to welcome you all here today, and uh, as you know, you've got a couple of special guests out there in the, in the Yarra. Scabby the Rat, who uh, obviously terrorises uh, UGL and uh, SO, and we've also got Fat Cat. Uh, fat Cat, as you would understand, has got a fat uh, gold chain around his neck, which actually talks about the greed. When we talk about greed, we've got to talk about the energy giants in this country. Everybody here pays tax, except these guys behind us. 8.5 billion, how much tax did they pay? Zero. Look at another oil and gas company, Chevron. You said, all love this, let's have a tax holiday till after 2030, like Chevron. This government, this government that we've got, this conservative government at this point in time uh, is not concentrating on the, on the real issues for this country. You know, we've got Peter, Peter Dutton, you know, the Homeland Minister, you know, talking about terrorism. Well, how about this, Pete? Let's start looking after, let's go after those financial terrorists, those economic and financial terrorists that are milking this country dry and stripping away the rights of workers. You know, they're pretty happy to talk about things like, uh, you know, domestic issues, like going, not doing the right thing by Aboriginals, not doing the right thing by uh, uh, equal rights for marriage. All those uh, things, don't do anything about it. Just keep profiling it, keep talking about it. To take your attention off these energy giants who are ripping the guts out of this country. Let's face it, that gas is ours. They've got to pay tax. They're making profits, billions and billions of dollars of profits. And I've got to say, this is the start. If you think we're going to stop, we're going to keep going. When we win this, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going for the workers in the West, the workers in Northern Territory, the workers in Queensland, the workers all over. So we are not going to stop. And just uh, want everybody to know that, that we are going to keep going. We're going to take up this fight. And what I'd like to do, I'd like to bring up some of the workers that it directly affects, um, Troy, uh, Brunty and Macca, and they can actually tell you, or Muzzo, I should say, not Macca, they'll actually tell you how it affects them personally. So, boys, can you come up? Morning, everybody. Thank you for coming and attending today. And it's great for us to see the support that outsiders have given us too. We truly appreciate all your support and all those who have uh, financially contributed, those who have given up their time to uh, assist us and come and visit us on the line. We thank you so much for that. But I'm here today. I just want to stand here and represent the wives and the children of those who are working out there. When, when I had my seven-year-old son come to me and say, Dad, why is the boss, why is your boss trying to take money from us? You know, how do you answer that? What, what, what's, a, what's a fair uh, thing to say to that, 
my, my son other than greed. When, when, when UGL, the company we worked for, used our statistics, they used our safety record, they used our skills to win another five-year contract and then turn around and offer us a shonky deal that will see us spending more time offshore, less time with our families and less money in the bank. All the meantime... What makes it even worse when my four-year-old overheard what we were saying, ran to his bedroom, went and got his money bank, tipped it on the table and said, here, Dad, here's all the money you need. Now, if a four-year-old can do that, what, why, why, how do we get grown, mature adults that can't even see it when a four-year-old can see that? And how do we answer them? And those kids... That's the reason why I'm here today. I want to stick up for them and the wives that are sacrificing their time. They're sacrificing their time with their, hus- with their husbands, with their um, fathers that are putting their life on, on the line in this industry when they're not even there trying to maintain the very platforms that we're working on and we're putting us in danger but I, th- I think it's shameful that they can turn around and then d- uh, even try and take the money out of the communities that, that we're working for and, th- and that have given their resources to see these companies use it. So thank you very much. I'll pass you on to the next speaker. Um, g'day, everybody. Um, I was asked to come up here and just talk about uh, how this affects me, um, losing my job. I've worked in Bass Strait for a long time. Um, and I thought about it, and look, you know, I've lost my ability to provide for my, to provide for my family. Um, I've lost my ability to earn, earn money. This, this, this money will go to other people in various places outside Gippsland or Victoria. Um, I've been accused of intimidating the so-called workers that come in to take our jobs. I find that disturbing. Um, when really the intimidators are sitting behind the glass that's behind me and above us. Um, And look, you know, to to be accused of intimidation is disturbing to me, but there's one thing, folks, that makes all that irrelevant, and that's the fact that um, if we don't stand and fight, we've lost the ability for our kids, our grandkids... The family men and women children here today, they've all lost the ability to, to earn a decent wage in the future, all so the people behind us can uh, ship more money out of Australia, tax-free, rape our community, rape our commodities, all so they can make more money to send to America and not leave in Victoria or Gippsland. That's what makes me feel shit. Afternoon, uh, brothers. Yeah, look, I was asked to come up here and speak a bit about the situation. I think the other two guys have covered the family situation pretty well. I'll tell you about my job interview I went for with UGL. I've worked a short time with a subcontractor for K, UGL K, and then I was, uh, I was taken into the, the nameless office in sale and offered a new contract. Um, 
the guy that was, uh, was offering the contract, he didn't talk it up. He's, he's reeled it all out. He goes, you realise that's gone, that's gone, that's been halved, you're not getting that anymore, blah, blah, blah. And I've gone, oh, yeah. And he goes, uh, you know about the overtime, though, don't you? And I did, but I said no. He goes, well, this is the clincher for me. He says, now, you'll all be casual. There'll be no permanent workers. He said, you'll work your eight hours a day offshore. And he said, you'll be paid as a casual for your eight hours. But he said, when you go into overtime, you'll be dropped back to the permanent rate. You'll drop 10 bucks an hour, and then we'll pay you overtime on that. And I thought to myself, how the hell is that legal? How has that even flown to be allowed in an agreement that we're getting presented to us? Some shonky couple of blokes in Western Australia have signed this contract. They aren't going to be working on this job, as far as we know. And that flies. They bring that to, they bring that to Victoria and they present that to all us guys here, a 30% pay cut. I walked out of that building and I thought to myself, and one of the guys actually mentioned it to me as well, were we worth 30% less today than what we were yesterday? I know a safety record and all the rest of it. Is that honestly the case with these clowns? Um, I, I, there was no way that you could agree to it. There's some people here today from Sale uh, that have worked in the SO system for over 30 years. They're now retired. And they've seen these conditions that also are going to be bargained away in that agreement. And they were, they were conditions that they lost money for in the 70s. And in one fell swoop, they want to take all that away. They want to split us from the unions and they want us to just cop it. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know about you guys, but I ain't copping it. Anyway, thanks for listening to me and good luck. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. A weak solidarity brekkie team lister when hubris, not normally associated with people who become parliamentary leaders overseeing the economic order of their respective countries, the economic order linking their respective countries, seems to have led to a same-sex divorce between our very own big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull and the US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor. Malcolm, a parliamentarian who believes Parliament has no role in making laws. Well, making laws about same-sex divorce. But has, he told confidants this week, a role in making laws to shut people up about same-sex divorce. Anyway, the Malcolm and Donald show. After Donald modestly confessed to Malcolm that he, Donald, is the most powerful man in the whole world, he conceded Malcolm was worse than he was, upsetting his self-awareness that he is the best at everything. I must be the best worst in the whole world. You, you can't steal my title. And well, it went on from there, especially when Malcolm wanted Donald to increase the US of family, or more correctly, as Malcolm sensibly pointed out, take steps that may increase the US of family without having to increase the US of family. You want me to accept prisoners? Just talk to them and dump them back in their cells. Just vet them. It'll help me a lot. Vet them? Are they animals? Of course not. You, you wouldn't treat animals this way. 
Well, let's ignore that humans are animals, but Donald wouldn't participate in a dishonest activity because he's a politician as well as a big, big business person. So on both fronts, he knows honesty is the hallmark of politics and big, big business. And we all know how politicians respect policies. Well, Malcolm promised a plebiscite and a promise is a promise. As Tiny and Eric and George and Kevin and Scrooge the workers and that appalling Hoonson and Corgi St. Bernardi trembling at the prospect of bestiality let loose keep reminding him. I don't need reminding, Malcolm moaned. Although he did crack a very amusing line about the prisoners he wants Donald to vet before having um, leaving them where they are. My dear friends at the bank, which used to be our bank, laughed, but it's much, much easier to launder money than launder people. <laughs> That's clever, isn't it? You've got to laugh, haven't you? But as the matter hits the divorce court, that argument, you're worse than me, said with the surprise that anyone could be, needs analysing, and I think the week that was could assure them it's very, very difficult to be definitive about the matter. In fact, I'm not prepared to make a decision. What a pity these two modest men can't just agree they're as bad as each other and not allow hubris get in the way. Getting in the way of the economy running smoothly, that threat by Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten ambition to tax family and other trusts, mentioned this last week. Well, this week, big economic guru scuttled them more less than called on Little Billy to release the costs of this outrageous policy, the costs of asking people to pay at least 75% of the tax they should pay, showing scuttled them's deep concern for the interests of the public purse. We just can't afford to tax the filthy rich. And the Minister for Financing the Private Sector, Matthias Rotten Tudor, iterated the socialists were intent on envy and class war. And it was envy and class war to ask business and the filthy, filthy rich to pay the tax they were avoiding, or sorry, minimising, presumably because of those costs Scuttle them is so concerned about. And the small business profit supremo, Peter Strongbox, said the socialists were planning both asking small business to pay tax and to increase Sunday penalty rates, which small business simply couldn't afford. They'd go broke, paying taxes and paying workers. The increase in penalty rates, of course, being restoring the penalty rates to where they were before the recent cuts, when they didn't go broke, but then and having to pay tax as well, and yeah, yeah, good point, Peter. But in a week when the nation has been has been in such danger, thank goodness for its vigilance. Lord Rupert of Wapping, P1, screaming, sky-high evil. Then, father-sudden team plans to bomb, etc. So I read on to find what charges had been laid, given the Wapping soon had found them guilty of, um, of, of, read on, hang on. I've got no idea. No charges had been laid at that stage. Oh, well, when there's no doubt, saves wasting time and expense on a trial and having to produce something as unnecessary as proof. One of the found guilty in the Lord Rupert newsroom was later released without charge. Hope he doesn't think he might have a case against Lord Rupert. After all, Lord Rupert is just doing his job as protector of our interests, the self-appointed protector. But on those matters, back to Donald and inside the White House, the new communications guy, the moosh, was moving the last of his stuff into his new office, reserving pride of place for his cherished volume of the Book of Profanities. We will stop the 
bleep leaks, he assured Alecki. Uh, uh, Moose, sir, that, that there's been a leak. Impossible. Bleep impossible. About what? Uh, you're fired. The leak has just announced your resignation. Unleashing a tirade of quotes from Moose's cherished volume. Uh, Moose, sir, w will I ask them to hold the removal van? While across the ocean, in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, the Patriot stood several deep, wrapped in, wearing and waving the Union Jack outside Her Most Gracious Majesty's London home to cheer Her Most Gracious Majesty's partner, the Prince, who was retiring from princing. The oppressors convincing the oppressed they are not oppressed. The last princing bit welcoming all these trained killers completing a march from somewhere or other. To state the obvious, they had to start somewhere or other. March to raise money for some charity or other, which saves the oppressors from having to foot the bill. Let me say, the prince said, I know all there is to know about charity. I've lived on it all my life. Now, I must criticise all these goody-goody-greenies calling for poor old Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle to have his water-for-my-mates portfolio taken from him. For goodness sake, what have these people got against satirists trying to steal our most valuable asset from us? Who else has the savvy to have a few drinks with his mates in a pub and boast how he ensured he got the water for my mate's portfolio so he could direct the river in their direction? Boast how he stopped the greenies from their stupidity, from wanting the river to be a river. What bloody economic value is a river being a river? Boast he extracted water from the environment portfolio, because what's water got to do with the environment? The savvy not to twig his boasting was being recorded. Poor Barnacle. And to ensure the water went where it should go, Barnacle recommended an irrigation lobbyist to be appointed to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Just a bit of bad luck again, recorded when you shouldn't be recorded, that the totally biased Four Corners program caught Barnacle's appointment saying, at that meeting where the bureaucrat promised the steal the water lot documents to assist their stealing, uh, sorry, obtain their fair share of the river, yeah, that would be fabulous. Forcing Barnacle's appointee to resign before she started, a bit like the moosh. All these secret recordings forced Barnacle to defend the right to free speech. I must defend the right of a man to speak his mind. How can a man speak his mind if people who have no right to know what's on his mind know what's on his mind? Yeah, good one, Barnacle, and, well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt on the mind bit. He did overlook the minor detail the appointee speaking her mind was not a man, but we are talking about Barnacle. Please, greenie, Greenies, don't let us lose him. And following that stick-together report about crook casino workers, yet another great troubler was he, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse's Scion, Jamie Puker, dragged before this inquiry in Zion investigating alleged corruption and fraud matters involving Jamie's very, very, very close friend, Zion Big Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo. Well, back home, down at the crook casino, a former health and safety officer is claiming unfair dismissal, 
claiming she was dismissed as health and safety officer because she had the gall, wait for it, to raise health and safety matters. Like a chef extensively burned, ordered not to leave his post to seek first aid until the end of his shift, the end of the day. There was no one to replace him, he was told. In the end, he needed a skin graft because he'd been working with the burns all day, but, well, he's employed to work, not get burnt, and he couldn't speak English well, and he was afraid he'd lose his job and didn't know his rights anyway, but we all know Jamie would respect workers' rights. Or a badly beaten woman left to attend her own injuries because the high roller who bashed her threatened not to come back to the Crook Casino if he was exposed. Or a worker who lost a finger when a heavy box fell on it and the bosses were upset he got blood on the money, making it difficult to count. But then, finally, surely, Jamie and his lot know all about blood money. Good morning. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ryder. And you're listening to 3C... Yes, and you're in Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. G'day, Humphrey, how are you? Oh, I'm a bit croaky, but I'll get there. Oh, is it as cold up there as it is down here? Uh, it may even be a touch colder. We, we, so. won't, we won't enter competitions about that. No, that's right. But we're talking about banks today, aren't we? We are talking about banks today. And we're also, of course, touching as always, because we've only got four weeks to go to the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital. Yes. So we'll be talking about that on the 2nd of September. That's right. But, uh, but today, <clears throat> there's quite a lot that one can say, except, I mean, one of the intriguing things about it is that if you look in Volume 1, there's actually more in Volume 1 about making bread than <laughs> making bread at the bank, the other kind of <laughs> the bread. bread. Yeah. There's more about bakers than about bankers in Volume 1. But the little bit that Marx does say about bankers in Volume 1 is quite significant in its own way because he's talking about something there called the 1844 Act that controlled the amount of, um, of currency that the Bank of England was allowed to put into circulation. And they had to keep very strict ratios between the amount of gold and the amount of cash that was flowing around the society. And then crises came in 47 and 57, and on both occasions, the government and the bank had to break their own rules. Now, what this indicates, of course, is what the function of banks in a capitalist society is, is to keep that circulation going so that all of the things that capitalism requires, um, the buying and selling, that there's money to be able to cover it. So and it's a pump. It's Well, it, yeah, it's certainly that. Um, it's kind of oil in the machine to keep it greasing over. Um, and if there's some freezing of that, and that's what the great danger was in September 2008, yep. that on that occasion, the fear of what was going to happen was that if one bank went down, all the other banks would think, oh, my God, what about the banks we've got money out to? Will we ever get it back? And they were beginning to say, we're not going to lend, which happens all every second of every day, where banks are passing money across to each other. So that with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, there was this great panic that the whole system would seize up. Because not only once the banks stopped lending to each other, it meant that they weren't lending to their to their customers, whether they are in construction or or commerce or in in or, you know making cars or anything else, and the whole system simply would have 
would have come to a halt. Now, and the mainstream if, media called this the GFC, right? Well, they focus on the financial bit of it because that's that's the bit they're a part of, of course. You yeah. know, I mean, they just see it in those terms. But and uh, yeah, I mean, the corruption. The, sorry, the corruption, <laughs> the eruption <laughs> happened in the financial sector. There's no doubt about that. But it was wrecking. It was recognizing a bigger problem throughout the society and the. Con- Continuous talk about the financial crisis, um, I think, really sort of drives us away from understanding where the financial system fits within the whole of the capitalist system. And that's kind of basically you know, a great deal of what I want to go on about. Oh, um, good. Okay. We, we're, we're, we're listening. <laughs> for the rest of today. Yeah. Um, but... If you want to know about what Marx thinks about um, the financial sector and the, and the credit regime and banks in general, there's a bit in Volume 2, but most of it is in Volume 3. Um, a problem with that is that you really can't understand what he's saying in Volume 3 until you've read your way and understood Volumes 1 and 2. So it's a pretty long row that you have to hoe to be able to understand it all. Now, we can't do that this morning, of course, except that if you look at what the three volumes are about, um, Volume 1 he called Capitalist Production, Volume 2, The Process of Circulation of Capital, and Volume 3, Capitalist Production as a Whole. It's not financial, it is production. Right. Uh, it's it's in, in the subtitles of the first and the third volumes. The question is, of course, the production of what? Mm. Um, now, capitalism according to Marx, is not driven by the making of things, uh, that is, of use values. It's not driven either by the production of commodities, which are use values that are the ways in which you circulate the, the exchange values, although that's getting closer. Rather, for Marx, it's the production of surplus value. And surplus value is what is extracted from the labour of the working class. And capitalism is primarily about that. That's what the production is. Um, that's where the exploitation comes in. That's the essential part of it. So that what we've always got to be looking at is who, which sections of the economy can produce surplus value. And Marx is, I think, pretty convincingly that bankers and their employees, their wage slaves, do not add surplus value. Right. What they do is to circulate surplus value that's been created somewhere else. So they're the white uh, rats on the um, spinning wheel. Well, they have to keep that going around, as you were <laughs> saying before. I mean, this is this is their job, but they're not adding any 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 extra to it in them in themselves of of what they do in in circulating that. Mm. It's a kind of cost that has to be put on the rest of the circulation. It's absolutely essential as we saw before. I mean, if there's no one doing it, the whole system isn't going yeah, to work. Yeah, that's right. But it is actually, isn't actually adding anything to that, to, to that part of the system. So that the interest payments that, you know, that, that end up at the banks, yeah. um, they have to come out of the surplus value too. Mm. Uh, they're the same as all the profits uh, that go to the big corporations or sometimes still um, some of the payments that go to the big landlords. Um, they're all coming out of the exploitation of labour. Um, so when we say that capitalists are parasites on the labour of their wage slaves, bankers are no worse. And yet there is a kind of prejudice that somehow or other bankers are, in a sense, you know, I don't know well... Oh, so what you're saying is that they've diverted attention from the reality once again by yeah. personalising it to bankers. 
Yeah, you know, and you know, I mean, there's an enormous sort of you know hatred of bankers, and justifiably so. I think you know, well, I'm not, I'm not here defending the bankers. No, 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 but it's 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 a a logical impasse. That's what you're getting. I mean, if I mean, if 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 you separate, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, if only we could fix up the bankers, capitalism would be okay. Well, if you fixed up the the bankers, yeah, if you fixed up the bankers, you wouldn't have capitalism. That's right. You know, that what they have to do is what is necessary for the capitalist system. So that this talk of They're a the royal mechanics. commission... Yeah, I mean, the talk of a royal commission... Is irrelevant. ...into the bad behaviour of the banks. Um, and indeed, there's no doubt that, you know, we keep seeing it every week. There's more of it, you know, that they're swindling, breaking laws, doing all these things. And, you know, I'd be quite happy to put the executives in jail. That wouldn't, I wouldn't lose a moment's sleep about that. No. Um, but... What we'd have to have to understand it is a royal commission into capitalism. Yes. And I don't think we're going to see that very shortly. That's called a revolution. Well, it's pretty close to it, except, except, of course, as as I want to suggest, a lot of what we'd find out is already in volumes one, two, and three of Capital. There's a good ground plan in there for what a royal commission into the function of the capitalist system would be able to expose. So there's all these good reasons for paying attention to what Marx was you know, laying down 150 years ago. Um, now, he, he begins, of course, in a historical way. He goes back and looks and says, um, were there bankers before there was capitalism? And the answer is yes, of course there was. Um, there Money were bankers. Lenders between the 1400s and up to about 1800. There were plenty Mm. of bankers. Mm. But that wasn't evidence for the existence of a capitalist mode of production. Mm. Uh, As we've noted, Marx stresses that the bank employees, because they're wage slaves too, they can't add surplus value. And if you have no production of surplus value, well, then you're not having um, any chance of having a capitalist system. So historically... People sometimes get confused. They say, oh, there were big bankers in the 1400s and there were bankers then. That is proof that there was capitalism. No, no, it's not no. true. Mm. You know, you've, you know, there's more to that. I mean, having a regime of credit functioning yeah, is but, essential to yeah. the capitalist system. So how did uh, it happen? What did they do? Well, what did they do? Well, Marx makes it clear, I think, that they do, the bankers, historically, do contribute to the system in a number of ways, to the origins of it. Um, and one of the ways in which they do it is that, um, and we're talking here not about necessarily the big bankers, but you know, kind of no, but that, that step by step, lenders. yeah, but the step yeah. by step of way that uh, the banks yeah. ultimately got stranglehold and changed the system to capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and one of the ways they do this is that you know, small producers, you know, farmers, people like this, you know, have to go into debt to them, and they can't pay the debt. Um, so their property is taken away from them. And as Marx says, this is one way in which you produce propertyless people who have to uh, who have to go into you know, what we then become the propertyless proletariat. They have yeah, to sell their the capacity to yeah. labour because they don't have anything else. So that's an essential part of the capitalist system 
because they're the only ones who are going to produce surplus value. Mm. And, and they create the urbanisation. Yep, go on. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways in which the financiers do contribute. But they also do it at the top end. Um, some, of the, some of the big landowners and people who, for one reason or another, get themselves into debt and are unable to pay, mm. um, they lose their estates as well. And these pass over into the hands of the big bankers and the financiers. And what they do, bring this money together... And you have the funds to put into the large-scale projects that are an essential part of the modern capitalist system. Yeah, like the Marx, railway think, system. Well, yeah. that's the perfect example. Marx based is very powerful. He said, if we'd have to wait <laughs> for one capitalist to save up all the money yeah. to build a railroad between two of the big English cities, we'd still be waiting. Yeah, the piggy bank would <laughs> have to be. Yeah. It's only possible if the banks are there to bring together money from a large number of different capitalists um and you know i mean so that's another way in which the banks are there but, but also they do things like the government then creates limited liability doesn't it well it that's another issue think. yeah yeah it, 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 well it's very important i mean it, it allows them to have more joint stock companies which is yeah. what we've just been talking about but those joint stock companies really depend upon this phenomenon called limited liability, which is that if your company goes bankrupt, yeah, they safe. don't take all of your private assets away from you, which had been the case, yeah. which was one of the things that really was a great restriction on people's willingness to engage in these activities because they thought, oh, my God, you know, the whole thing will go. We'll lose the family home and everything. So, so they separated liability. and they separated from what would be called natural justice. You, you know, when they talk about risk, they're not actually taking that risk. No, no. And in fact, it's intriguing. If you go back to the time in which the limited liability was come in, papers like the London Times write editorial saying this is just a recipe for swindles. <laughs> they were against surprise. it. You know, yeah. but well, anyway. it was the English who invented it. Well, it had to come. I mean, if you were going to have capitalism, you were going to have to do these kinds of things. They'd certainly change. Now, what Marx shows is, of course, that in this process, whereas the, the financier before capitalism had been calling the shots, once capitalism comes out of this, the, there are still, they perform essential functions within the capitalist system, but they are subordinate to the production system. Um, and that's the big change that he sees happening from the late, you know, sort of, well, really from the late 18th century, from the late 1700s onwards. Mm. Um, and what they then do, of course, they have another important function, as we said before, at the obligation to the, you know, to 2008. They're there, and they speed up the turnover times. Because if you, you know, if you think this yourself, if if everybody had to wait to be paid in full for all the things that, that they that they produce and then and, and then have to sell and they have to wait you know it, it goes to the other side of the world uh, they have to wait 18 months for the money to come back the whole system would still be at about the level of small scale production it's only if you have a mercantile system whereas you sell you produce something and you sell it on and you get paid with, within the next 30 days, although the money for that sale is circulating throughout the system and it might take you know, six months or nine months before it actually comes back to the, to the financiers who put up the money. And they make a charge for doing that. Um, but it's that 
um, is that flow-on system, as you were saying before, that enables the system to keep on expanding and, and for the turnover times to be happening at, 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 at any kind of rate that would indeed make it possible for, uh, for the system to be able to operate. Mm, okay. Now, you know, of course, that was well, 150 years ago, and the banks have been through a couple of big... The financial system has been through a couple of big changes ever since. We won't go into them in great detail, but the period of what Lenin calls imperialism or monopolising capitals, the function of the bankers in there changes. It changes again, really, in the 1980s, which people call financialization. Um, so you have these... You know, Things are always changing. I mean, that's one of the basic rules of dialectics. You know, you, you, whatever was established 200 years ago or 150 years ago, some of the elements will continue, but they will continue in a changed environment. What, uh, what happened when Chifley uh, tried to what he, he what he was trying to do with the banks do. in well, Australia? That, that's quite an illustrative example for Australia. Would have to be yeah. pretty smart to, to get this over in the, in the little minute. Move, minute, got, minute but I mean, that. people you know people say, oh, I want to nationalise the banks as a first mm. step towards establishing socialism in Australia. Well, that's not what he was trying to do. You'd be what so he lucky. saw was that in the post-war construction period, what you needed were, um, you know, they were going to have this huge migration program, they were going to have industrialisation, they were going to have... Um, they were aiming to get full employment, not go back to the 30s, and they were going to have the huge um, hydroelectric scheme that they were going to fund. And all of these were going to require huge amounts of money. Mm. Now, Chifley had sat on a Royal Commission into banking in the 30s. He thought, saw then that the banks had refused to lend to the small and medium um, um, firms. Uh, BHP was okay. They had very special relationships with, with one or other of the big banks. Yeah, but very the special. small and medium people, the only way they could get money was to save up and, you know, and fail to do what Mark said about trying to build a railway. So he said, what we need is a way to get hands on more of the money that passes through the banking system. And the first way of doing this was to pass a law that said all of the local governments in Australia had to bank with the Commonwealth Bank. This would mean that the Commonwealth Bank, which was then still the People's Bank, um, could be used, the funds in there could be used to lend and to fund these big projects that they had. Now, the Melbourne City Council, run by the Tories, appealed to the High Court, and the law was declared unconstitutional. It was then, and only then, that Chifley said, we're going to have, we're going to, have to nationalise the banks to get the funds available to make it possible not to go back to the 1930s. So mm. that's what he was trying to do. And the money, some of it, of course, from the Commonwealth Bank, General Motors Holden gets a million pound from the Commonwealth Bank. They get half a million pound from the Bank of Adelaide because Tom Playford screws the arms of the Adelaide bankers and says, we need this development for the state of South Australia. So for that project to happen, but you've got to see what Chifley was trying to do in this context of trying to get the funds to make it possible to make sure that we didn't go back to, um, to the disasters of the collapse of you know of unemployment and you know all those no, terrible things of the 1930s. Now, of course, the whole of the capitalist system changes in the post-war, uh, uh, you know, after total, the Second World War, in, yeah, yeah, in, um, environment there. So the expansion of capital uh, takes place, even the Menzies government. When they come in, you know, horror though they were at the thought of bank nationalisation, they set up a number of institutions to lend money to small and medium firms. 
um, they'd always been there for farmers. Mm. Uh, well, they always yeah, 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 been there for you know, you know, quite a long time. But they extend that into a number of other, and we still see it today. Um, these talk about putting money out to you know, um, to to. Uh, to some of the environmental projects and things. So there's always this question of where's the money going to come from? Where's that investment going to be that will go into these new projects? So, so that's an important part of it. The one final thing in which we could say that Marx says, will we need these institutions under socialism? And Marx is pretty clear that we won't. And the reason he says we won't is because under socialism, the entire economy will be a planned economy. And that will replace the kind of piecemeal planning that happens because the banks, who are you know, competing with each other, dealing with competing large producers, all they do is to they do a kind of planning of the economy, but it's pretty much you know, here and there. There is no overall plan. And to it's it. and so it's a, under a socialist system. Yeah. You know, that's certainly not going to be there. Yeah, because so, it, they, what they're doing is looking at profits for individual yeah, capitalists. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we could we could again sum up by saying yes, there were bankers long before there was capitalism, but you're never going to have capitalism unless there's the equivalent of someone doing the work that the financiers and the financial regime have to do for the system. Oh, thank you very much, Humphrey. And we'll talk to you again in two weeks' time because you want to do a follow up to this, don't you? I want a bit of a follow up and have a look at the the world at the state of the world banking system today. Um, you know, to see how strong it is. Yeah. Or where its weak spots are as well. Thanks okay. very much. In a fortnight. You're a okay. hero. Bye. That was Humphrey McQueen. He did, he did a, a, a top job going through that material. Very interesting stuff. All right, that's Solidarity Breakfast. We're coming to the end of the show. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. And uh, what did we do? I t- I, uh, we, first off, we looked at Venezuela. We... Uh, then went to the Longford dispute uh, and the rally that came up to Melbourne with Scabby the Rat and uh, Greedy the Cat. Um, the first speaker was Troy Gray, the ETU Victorian Secretary. Then there was Craig Kelly from the AMWU and Steve Dobbs from the uh, Gippsland Trades Hall Council and some affected workers. Very interesting stuff they had to say, who said that workers don't know what's going on. And uh, next we had This Is The Week That Was from Kevin and uh, we had the fantastic uh, Humphrey McQueen telling us about what's what with the bankers. We're going to go out with Don't Let a Good Thing Go, Paul Kelly featuring Dan Sultan. If you find a love strong and true You don't You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.